The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn in our Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 4, thinking about the Lord's will and living according to the statement, if the Lord wills. By the way, we just returned from being in Texas for a time, and we went to this camp that we go to every year, Christian camp, where, interestingly, the leaders of the camp, which is about 100 years old, decided that over the years, they decided that they're just going to sing the good old hymns of the faith. And what those old hymns of the faith are, early 20th century um, hymns, especially ones by B.B. McKinney, maybe you've heard of him, like Victory in Jesus. So we've come from a week of singing. And everybody in the camp, by the way, loves to sing the old hymns, including all the kids, because they don't sing hymns like quite like that in their churches, which have a lot of the more modern hymns or praise choruses. But it's like you're stepping back in time, and everybody loves it, and we have a great time praising the Lord. But I have to get back to Presbyterian hymns or uh, our hymn book here after we come back, after that experience, which is always good. Hear God's word from James 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of God. Father, we pray that you would give light to our eyes as we consider your word. Familiar verses to many of us, Lord, help us to think right thoughts and give us the help of your spirit. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Many of you know that the city of Austin, Texas, was named after Stephen Austin, a famous figure in Texas history who founded a colony of settlers in the early 1800s and part of the area that would later become Texas. Austin was a very busy and energetic man with big plans. He was a natural leader. And in 1834, he was doing all the things that he had to do as actually an agent of the Mexican government at that point, because he had to work in that way in order to get this settlement going. And he had various problems that needed to be resolved, so he made a hurried trip to Mexico City to sort things out. What ended up happening was not in his plans. Because of certain conflicts with the Mexican government, he ended up being thrown in prison. And he wasn't just in prison for a few days. No, he ended up languishing there for over a year until he was finally released. And you can be sure that 
that was not how Stephen Austin had planned to spend that year of his life. All of us have plans. We have big plans for our lives, important plans, and we also have everyday little ordinary plans. Maybe some of you were just thinking right now about what you're going to do when you get home or what your plans are for tomorrow or what if it rains or if it doesn't rain. We all have an agenda for our lives, even if that agenda may be very ordinary. Some people are more energetic and organized. Other people may be more flexible and laid back. But no matter what may be your particular personality or style, God tells us something very plainly in this text. James is a lot like Proverbs in some of the ways that it speaks to us. And the message here is that you and I must submit our plans and our lives to God. We must yield to God our plans and our agenda for our lives according to his sovereign will. We must learn more and more complete dependence on him. And trusting Jesus Christ, we must learn to live our lives for him and for his glory. We need to learn to say and to really mean it, verse 15, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. What do we learn from our text? How do we live out the instruction of our text I would like us to look at this text under a couple main points. The first is this, the pitfall of having an agenda apart from acknowledging God's will. The pitfall of having our agenda apart from acknowledging God's will. In other words, planning without regard to God's will. And this is what we see in verses 13 and 14 of our text. James addresses those who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now he's not saying it's wrong for them to have these plans. It's not saying it's immoral or wrong to go and make a profit, to trade and and do what they're doing in their business. But he rebukes them and exhorts them because they are saying this based on what it would seem to be a worldly self-confidence, a presumption that they are in control of their lives. In other words, they have not yielded their plan to God. When you think of the kind of agendas we all have, we see how important it is that we are mindful to give our agenda to God. Maybe you're a task-oriented individual and you have a to-do list a mile long and you're trying to get all those tasks done. Or maybe you're a comfort-oriented individual, and your plan is to see how much work you can escape. Or maybe you're a relationship-oriented individual, and your plans orient more around the people you'd like to be with and spending time with them. Or maybe a security-oriented agenda that uh, you want to make money for security and prepare for any eventuality or You could say there could be a success or a job-oriented agenda to conquer the world and to do great things or a pleasure agenda that involves having fun or excitement. And 
how, the, the way that these verses speak to us is that it is fine to plan. And all of these kinds of agenda may be right in their place. But we must not have plans apart from God. The big problem here that we see under this point is not actively acknowledging and depending on God and his will and not ordering our days without an orientation to our Lord. I was thinking about this on the flight home from Texas on Wednesday, and there's nothing like flying that makes you realize that you're not in control of your life, at least that particular part of your life. I think some people really don't like to fly because they're not in control. You sit there, you don't have anything to say about where the pilot goes or he goes up or down or whether the the control people tell him to fly around a storm or anything. You're just like, uh, you're being herded almost like a, uh, a sheep or a cow and you're just... You know, if you're told to put on your seatbelt, you have to do it. You're not in control. It's not like driving a car. At least you feel like you could pull off the road and get out if you need to, but it's not that way with the plane. So that's the pitfall. Having an agenda apart from God's will, we are not in control. And James, under this first point, gives us two supporting reasons for why we must beware of this. He tells us at the the beginning of verse 14, the first reason, the first supporting reason is that life is uncertain. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Probably each of you could tell a story about something in the last few weeks, about some unexpected change in your plan. We had a very grievous event like that with this camp that someone who regularly came to the camp was headed there and was in a traffic accident and was in glory immediately. All the plans for the week, gone. Everyone was struck with the solemnity of that and the sorrow of that, and the family was distressed by that, but knowing that he was in glory. My family knows a special time that we were heading down to see the new, at the time, World War II monument in Washington, D.C., and on the Baltimore Beltway, our transmission of our van went out, and we glided across about three lanes of traffic to an exit and glided off the exit ramp and ended up being towed back to Lancaster. All the extended family was at the World War Museum with my parents. We were back in Lancaster after a heavy towing toll, I might add. That wasn't the plan for the day, but we all remembered gliding across the Baltimore Beltway without any transmission going. Our lives are uncertain, at least in regard to our knowledge and our control. Of course, not so with God. But the second supporting reason James gives is in the second half of verse 14. Life is short. He says, what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Sometimes I'm out early in the morning and especially in the summer when um, there might be a mist on the fields across the street, especially in the low-lying areas. And it's beautiful to see a, a, a fog or a mist there, there, and I go back inside and do some things to get ready and so forth to come out again, and the mist's gone, just disappears. It's like the mist is there and it's gone. That's the idea behind this. And James says, your life is a mist in the perspective of eternity. He's not undermining the importance of human life or the fact that our lives are hidden with Christ. He's saying there is an uncertainty about our human life. 
and we had when we have these reminders of someone taken suddenly from us, we're all reminded of that. Job, in his in the book about Job, seemed to be very much aware of this reality, probably because of his great suffering. He says in chapter seven, verse six, he says, "My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle." Have you ever been in a historic area where they demonstrate weaving and the shuttles that they that almost fly back and forth if so, as somebody weaves a garment or a piece of cloth? Or Job says in nine twenty-five, "My days are swifter than a runner; they skim past like boats of papyrus." Job is speaking about the shortness of life. And it was especially real to him because of his suffering. David says in Psalm 102, verse 11, My days are like an evening shadow. You know how evening shadows are getting long, and soon they're gone as night comes on. He says in Psalm 39, verse 5, You have made my days a mere handbreadth. You know how you measure a horse by how many hands he or she is? And David is saying the Lord measures our life as like it were a hand, very short. And then in Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. Again, being in the southwest reminds me that it's pretty dry there, and often you are in an area where it's all kind of dirt, and there's no grass there, and then the rainstorm comes in the rainy time of the year, and it seems like overnight grass springs up. But that same grass can be turned to stubble very soon when the rains don't come. It's not like the grass here that stays green all year round, it would seem. David is saying the days are like grass. Another analogy. I like the analogy Mike Mason, the author of The Mystery of Marriage, says. He has a commentary on Job. And speaking about this, he says, Lives are curly cues of fire cut briefly in the dark with a glowing stick. Children, if you've ever written your name with a sparkler on July 4th, and it's kind of the idea that if you do that, the residue of your, na- of your name in the sky as you write it with a sparkler kind of sticks in your, in your vision. That's what Mike Mason is saying our lives are like or what the illustrations in Scripture point to, the uncertainty of life, the shortness of life. Those supporting reasons should help us not fall into this pitfall. And we don't tend to think that way. We tend to think that the way life is will always go on. We live as if we are infinite. Scripture exhorts us, don't do that. That's what happens when we maintain our agendas apart from a real and heartfelt acknowledgement of God's will, if it is the Lord's will. Maybe it's because I'm getting older these days, but the longer I live, the shorter life seems to be. When I was in grade school, it seemed to last forever. I remember writing the date at the top of my paper every day, and it seemed like we were stuck in a year forever because I couldn't wait to get to junior high school. But now I look at a picture from 20 years ago and think, was that three years ago? It just seemed like yesterday. And the point is that our lives are rushing by us. That shouldn't distress us because we are in Christ, but it should remind us of our dependence on our eternal God and should teach us to number our days. Don't separate your life and your plans from active dependence on our God. And that's what reflected in saying, if the Lord wills. 
That brings us to our second point, what it means to rightly say, if the Lord wills. Verse 15, it means that we hold our agenda lightly before God. There are two ways that Scripture speaks about God's will. We talk about this in Sunday school when we teach on the sovereignty of God. One sense of God's will is God's sovereign will, that he accomplishes according to his plan. But there is another sense of the will, his revealed will, his commands. And both of those are valid ways to speak about God's will. And here we're talking about the sovereign will of God. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We don't know if the plans that we have made for tomorrow are according to God's plan for our lives. He may intervene. He may not bring that about. We may have the best plans in the world, but they may not materialize if it's not God's sovereign will. Proverbs 16.9 states it this way, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Planning, yes, but with a humble submission to God's sovereign and loving will. The difference is our attitude, our mindset to our lives. The Puritans used the Latin phrase Deo Valente, for God willing. And the Methodists took that up with the letters D-V. The early Methodists wrote D-V on all of their placards or advertisements of events that they would have a meeting or something. They put D-V at the bottom of it, meaning if the Lord wills. Of course, that has to be more than just a trite cliche in our minds or in our words. It doesn't mean that we always have to say, if the Lord wills, every time we talk about our plans. That would get old after a while. It's not to be a mantra that we use in that sense, but it should be reflective of the attitude of our hearts, and sometimes we should say it to remind ourselves, okay, if the Lord wills. Especially parents with young children have to get used to this because you never know what's going to go wrong next. I remember those years of our lives. Well, finally then, what is the evidence that I am living according to if the Lord wills? How do I know? What are some signals if my agenda is yielded to God or not? Well, I'd like us to think about three areas here. The first is, If bad fruit comes out when my agenda is thwarted, then it is not yielded to God. Think of that. If bad fruit comes out of my life when my plan or my agenda is thwarted or falls through, then my agenda is not yielded to God. Look at verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James is pointing out some bad fruit, some boasting, some worldly self-confidence. That's bad fruit. There are lots of other kinds of bad fruit. Impatience with others, unkindness, sinful anger, controlling behavior, manipulative behavior, malice, spite, all these kinds of things. Essentially, what we're saying is, if my agenda gets changed, and as a result of that, I sin then I am not doing a very good job of saying and really meaning it with my heart if the Lord wills, trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, bad fruit does not mean 
heartache or sorrow or grief. In other words, there's a place for those things, and that is not wrong. We're not talking about suffering or sorrow or the kinds of uh, psalm-like emotions we might have before our God when our lives take a bad turn. But I am talking about sinful fruit, the kinds of sins that come out in the list that Scripture gives. And very often, God's school of teaching us to genuinely say and mean if the Lord's will, if the Lord wills, is our daily, mundane, ordinary lives. That's the best place to learn this. How are we ever going to say if the Lord wills for the giant things in life, for the big problems and heartaches in life, if we can't learn to say it when we get a flat tire or when things don't turn out as we plan for our day? Maybe you love computer glitches like I do. You know, I don't mind it if I see a weed in the flower bed and I know how to pull that weed. But when the computer goes wrong, I don't know how to fix it. You know, can I be calm and trusting the Lord even when the computer goes wrong? There's one to test your, your grace. I remember when I worked building fences one summer in Texas when Patty and I lived in Fort Worth and and I taught school. In the summer between the two years I taught school, I worked with a friend building fences in that summer heat. And it seemed like every fence post I dug, and those were the days when you dug it with a fence post digger, not anything electronic or gas powered, there would be rocks in that place. Just like, oh, I was hoping for pure topsoil the whole way down. Isn't that how our life often feels? Like, I thought it would be easy to dig this hole, and it's not. If the Lord wills, we need to learn in those everyday ways. So the first um, evidence is bad fruit. Another, Another way to think about this, secondly, is if I go about my life and plans with no sense of dependence on God and his will. If I go about my life with no active sense that I am dependent on God's will, am I trusting the Lord with the way my life is going right now, even though it may not be according to my plan? That's an evidence that it's yielded or not yielded to God. Let me look at some other scriptures to give us some examples of this. One is in 1 Peter three seventeen, where Peter is talking about living according to to God's will, his revealed will, and he says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The Christians Peter was writing to were seeking to live according to the word of God, the revealed will of God, but he says it might be God's sovereign will that they suffer for doing good. They may experience opposition or persecution And Peter's exhortation and encouragement for them in verse 17 is to trust God's sovereign will for their lives, if that should be God's will. And he's not talking just about a stoic kind of stiff upper lip reaction, not a fatalism, but trusting in their father's care. We said in the Heidelberg Catechism this morning as we responded to it that Our only hope and in life and in death was that we belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. 
Another verse that speaks of this is in Matthew 10, 29 to 31, a beautiful passage that Jesus is speaking to us about, again, in the context of persecution. But there's this incredible promise he gives. He says, he's talking about trusting the Lord no matter what happens, if persecution should come. And he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. I must imagine this as Jesus using, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you see the, you know, two for one special. Buy two at the price of one. It's almost like Jesus is saying in the market you get Two sparrows for the price of one. They're a penny each, but they're throwing in an extra one. And even though uh, these sparrows would have been inexpensive to buy and seemingly insignificant, which is the point of this, yet not one falls to the ground, Jesus says, apart from the Father's will. And then the argument goes, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. It's, it's an argument from the lesser. Uh, if, if, if the lesser is true, if the sparrow is taken care of by God, this extra sparrow, how much more does God number the hairs of his people's head? Does he take care of you? And so the exhortation in verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Note the pr- purpose of why Jesus says this. It's not given just as an abstract principle of theology that we might apply in any way. Jesus gives this to minister to the fear of loss, the fear of death, the fear of suffering and evil and opposition and persecution among his people, that they would rest in him and trust in him, come what may. Clearly, this establishes the total and sovereign control of God over life, but with this pastoral emphasis for our good, that we be strengthened and enabled more and more to trust in him when our plans are dashed. We must ask ourselves, am I cultivating that kind of daily trust in God? Some of you children here may be planning to start school in a few weeks and Uh, maybe you have some apprehension about what teacher you're going to get or what friends might be in your class or things like that. Um, This is an opportunity to trust your God. Some of you adults, likewise, problems maybe you're facing with your job or in your neighborhood or issues of finances or health concerns. These words of our Lord speak to us all. Do I believe in the promises of God? And so we've looked at some of these evidences. How do I know if my daily life is yielded to God that I'm saying, if the Lord wills? Well, one is, is there bad fruit? And the answer is, there probably is often, and we need to seek to put our sin to death and trust the Lord. Secondly, is there this active sense of trusting in God? We pray that God would develop that in us more and more by the power of Spirit. But also we would One more final evidence. If the focus of my priorities is exclusively on the things of this world. Back in the book of James, verse 17, this section concludes, so 
Ever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is, as you probably know, one of the best verses in the Bible about sins of omission. We have sins of commission that we actively do, but there are also sins of omission, that which is God's will that we fail to do and we're called to do. Like we're called to love others, but a sin of omission would be that we know we're called to love others and we don't do it. So one of the ways to think about the connection to this verse and what has gone before it, what James has just said about if the Lord wills, is to see that one of the evidences of a life given to God is that we have a right focus on the things that are most important. Doesn't it remind us of of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus exhorts us and tells us not to be anxious and don't worry about clothes and food and things like that. Our Father provides these things. But then there's that positive command, but seek first the kingdom of God. And that's the kind of evidence I'm speaking of here. What is the focus of our lives? Are we living as though this world is all there is? How frequently do we think about the way God calls us to live? It could be summarized by saying God calls us to live for his glory every day, to show forth his praise. Am I becoming more and more the kind of person God wants me to be in terms of loving my enemies even and praying for those who might oppose me or showing forbearance and patience with the people that are closest to me in my life? Am I involved in loving and showing mercy to those in need, members of my family, neighbors, members in the body of Christ, even those in need that may be more distant in kind of the concentric circles of influence in my life? Is God using me? And do I have any focus as prayer for being an instrument of the gospel in someone else's life that I'm praying for my neighbors or family members who aren't saved or people I rub shoulders with at my job or at my school? How about my money and possessions as belonging to the Lord for his use and not simply for my own pleasure and my own agenda? Are these things given to him? Or we could go to all the practical ways Scripture talks to husbands to love your wives or wives respect your husbands or children obey your parents or employees and employers to to live in such a way that you're living before God. All of us living for God's glory. Is the focus of my priorities exclusively on the things of this life? If that's the case, then that's evidence that we're living according to the phrase, if the Lord wills. What are the kinds of things that get in the way and take God's place in our heart? We know that they're not only things that are sinful in and of themselves, but even the good things of this life that are not necessarily wrong, but we let them push out a focus on the things of God. It's interesting that In that very practical section of Ephesians, Paul talks about putting to death sin and putting on the virtues of Christ. And near the end of that portion, he says, be very careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity because the days are evil. There's a positive perspective. We live in evil days, 
Be wise. Be very careful how we live. We need to be focusing on saying and being able to really mean, if the Lord wills. I like the way the pastor Kent Hughes describes it in his commentary on James. He says, if the Lord wills is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our lives. If God wills must be written over students' plans, the choice of a life partner, future education, all everyday activities. We need to say from the heart, if God wills, I will spend time doing thus and thus. If God wills, my children will become thus and thus. If God wills, I will take up this ministry. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should have this heart attitude. Stephen Austin certainly didn't expect to be thrown in prison for a year. I doubt that anyone here has to be concerned about that possible eventuality this week or anytime soon, at least I hope not. But we must say that none of us here knows what tomorrow may bring. And our goal must be to bring our daily lives more and more into submission to our Lord and God and His will. And that begins with trusting Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That's the very beginning of a life lived for the glory of God. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that, you can certainly say, is what God writes above all of his will for your life right now, that you would submit your life to his lordship and trust Jesus Christ to free you of your sins, to save you from your sins, and to begin to work his good will in your life to his glory. May that be the goal of all of us this week as we trust in him. Amen. Father, thank you for the calling of living before you does not come naturally to us. Our natural self would live for selfish reasons, but thank you that we have been born again through Jesus Christ with new desires and new dispositions and a new orientation. Oh, Lord, stamp that image more on our, on our lives this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.